Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. Okay, so we are we are on our second of the season. We I'm looking outside. It's very dark, and I just glanced at our calendar when our we have deadlines and such, and we're getting out of town. We're going to travel. We're going to yeah, get out of this darkness. Yeah, it's very dark at the latitude we're at. I've learned to accept that this is the dark latitude and to accept I got to <laughs> deal with that and the rain. It's funny how you fight something, even though you've known it for years, but, and, but. And we live here. We live here, but we can get out. Yes, And it's we important do. to get out. And I wanted to talk today. We're going to be talking to Renee Erickson and, and she's this amazing chef and business owner and world traveler. And she took a trip to Rome when she was younger and it changed her life. She saw food and culture in a completely new way. And now she owns over a half a dozen restaurants here in Seattle. She has this new book we're going to talk about. Just amazing what travel can do and be in other cultures and experiencing other things. And Amy, you have traveled so much. So I was just going to, I just, I think it's important we talk about this travel and, and, and why it's important. And I think we put it as a back burner, a lot of people do, is not vital or important. And and now that we're coming out of the pandemic, I feel like we can talk about it. Right. I think a lot of people travel for a lot of reasons. People have very different reasons for why they travel. And a lot of people, they just need a break. They need a vacation. They need a break. But I like to think about why. Why do we need a break or why do we need to go somewhere different? And I think that for me, it's a really good exercise to help shift my perspective. Mm. You know, I think it's important to go other places, meet other people, learn something and see things you've never seen before, see behavior you've never seen before and soak it in and rethink, rethink things in your life and, and how you see them, your perspective changes. Do you have a specific, I mean, you've traveled a lot of places. It's come up on the podcast a little bit. You've, you've seen a lot of the world and traveled a bit. Do, is there... Something that jumps out just in this conversation, maybe it's not the most impactful moment you had, but but do you, was there a time you got away and, and the culture or the people or something happened that changed your perspective? That's a really hard question to answer. I would say every time, yeah. every time I go somewhere. And I mean, I could go to Arizona or I could go to Burma and there's something I learn, right? Or that you wouldn't learn if you stayed here. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's really important because, you know, we talk about the human experience at baseline, we're all born and we all die. That's at baseline, right? If you're looking for commonality, there's those two things. But human beings are very similar. We're very similar to each other. And of course, there's a lot of differences, but we're also very similar. And so seeing how human beings solve problems, you know, I'm always fascinated by how human beings solve problems. You know, I there's a lot of medical conferences I'll go to that um, that like the time I got a hotel room because the medical conference was in China and it was like in the middle of the night and I really wanted to participate in it. And I love participating in those conversations because the way people see medicine is different. Or even even if we're using some of the same you know, therapeutics or drugs, the way they're used or the way they're thought about are different. And so 
I think it's really important to talk to other human beings. And one of the ways you can do that is travel. I think for me, uh, it's, um, I get to escape too. Uh, I'm, people know me. Mm-hmm. And so when I leave, it's kind of mm-hmm. nice. I still get, people still recognize me in those areas sometimes, but I think it's not just the, that people may know who I am. I think it's just, I get out of my reality because now I'm, I'm kind of forced to be in somebody else's culture and do things a different way, eat differently, eat even at different times or with uh, uh, different utensils or no utensils at all. Or I love that challenge and that excitement of, of finding out like what a culture is about. Even when we went to, I remember we were taking your parents to Europe. Some of your family members like, oh, you're going to go with them. They're going to make you take the public transportation. You're probably going to stay in some B&B. Yep, that's exactly what we did. And it was awesome. And they loved it. How else are you going to see a place if you're not traveling on their buses and checking out the subway system, getting lost? You know, I get lost in the New York subway system still. Everyone does, because I, and I live there. But to go to France and do that was... Yeah, we were taking the subway or the trains yeah, all your around. parents loved it. You know, um, that trip was great. Yeah. And my parents at the time hadn't been to Europe. They hadn't been to any of those places. And... I had a lot of joy watching their faces, you know, and talk about how people were doing things or not doing things again, like how, how do other human beings live and how do they solve problems and how, how do they go about their lives, you know, and learning from that and observing that. And, you know, the other thing is there's a little bit of escapism in it for sure. And that's not a bad thing. It's, it's actually healthy to have a bit of escapism, but I also, we, you also meet other travelers, right? Mm -hmm. I have this story where I was in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And before I started, I was working in Chiang Mai. And before I started work again and kind of getting into my routine, I decided to um, kind of do something a little touristy and to take some transportation up to uh, stay with like some hill tribe families, right? And have that experience. And I was sitting on the curb waiting for this truck to come pick me up. And this woman sits down on the curb next to me and we start talking. And it turns out we're both like best friends with my friend, Allie. And she had told me that her friend Sonia was going to be in Thailand. Thailand is a big country. (laughs) And, you know, you could say, well, you know, part of it was that we were kind of doing something touristy, right? But what are the odds that the two of us are going to end up on the same curb talking to each other and like she had known Allie for a hundred years. I Allie was one of my best friends for a hundred years. We had been both informed. Amy's in Thailand. Sonia's in Thailand. What what are the odds that in that moment we found each other? With you, the odds are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of experiences like that. Hey, hey, hey. It's the doctor and the DJ. Doctor and the DJ. On the show today, we talk with Renee Erickson, award-winning chef, business owner, author, and world traveler. And speaking of traveling, we continue our discussion on the importance of it with some, some more stories coming up. And we listen to the amazing music of Ducks Limited out of Toronto throughout this podcast.
Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, we've, I've been thinking about travel quite a bit. We have some trips planned and we're starting to get more, we feel safer Yeah, traveling now. And um, I was thinking back to the trips that had uh, impact in my life. You know, one of them, I'll be honest, um, you know, I talked about escapism a little bit. Uh, I, we, we traveled to a naked resort uh, <laughs> yeah. down, down in Mexico. That's right. And um, I never thought that would be a thing years ago, but I, I get really tired of kind of, you know, we talk a lot about this on this podcast, but being put in a box or telling you how it's supposed to be or how you're supposed to act how you're just supposed to be a certain way. And it wasn't like I was, something was telling me, oh, I got to get naked. It's just so important to me. I got to, it just seemed like I wanted to try it. Like, well, what's this about? You know, who are these people? Who are these fine folks who are taking off (laughs) all their clothes and hanging out? Like, what is this about? And so we just, Amy and I, this is what we do. We just went, well, let's find out. Guess what? They're all really normal, nice Some of the nicest people I have (laughs) ever met or traveled with. uh, And we, and I got to be honest, it took me just a few minutes to get comfortable. Yeah. And I realized they don't care that you're naked. They don't. Because everybody is. Because everyone is. You think everyone's going to be looking at this and that and judging you or this or that. And it was the most non-judgmental group of people I think I have ever been around. And that's liberation. Like, to be able to... Get away from like shame and judgment and all of that stuff. And that stems from everyone else's insecurities, right? Yeah. And it wasn't just that everybody was naked and like sort of liberated from their clothing. There was an attitude there. There was an attitude of acceptance that went beyond people's bodies or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and, and if I think about it, where it comes from for me too, we, you know, in my... Last marriage, which was uh, a train wreck that ran into a, a cruise ship that sunk uh, in a volcano, um, <laughs> I was made to feel pretty bad about myself, about body image, or that um, it was me. Like, that's why we weren't close or physical or whatever. It really seeped in there after a while. And so when I met you, you remember, I recoiled when you would hug me, or which seems so crazy to me now. I'm going in for as many hugs as I can get, my friends. Um, but I just had a bad feeling about myself. I just didn't feel... And then all the old voices in my head that came from the past, they didn't say we necessarily about your body, but just that you in general aren't a good person, a worthy person, whatever. You know, those we all have some voices, right? So well, I think some of that was built into why I was wanting to go as well and why I felt so liberated, like I could feel good about myself. Yes. I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole of core wounds and things like that on this podcast, but many core wounds for people are not feeling worthy and not feeling lovable or that they're capable of being loved. And I think that that, if you're thinking of that as the center, then everything else stems from that. And that includes how you feel about your body. That includes how you feel about whether or not you can do a presentation at your job. That includes um, how you are with your partner or your or your sexual partners or even how you are with your children. Everyone. It all stems from there. And unfortunately for you uh, and me, I kind of did the same thing, but sometimes we seek out partners who are familiar. Yeah. And so if we had a parent who treated us a certain way and made us feel like a piece of shit, 
our first partners are people who treat us like a piece of shit because yeah. it's our it's like familiar. Does that yeah, make sense? And I, and I yes, and I'm and I also think you know when I think about when I've talked to friends or, or people in the past about like something like this, um, I actually just hit me like a lot of the responses, and this is fellas, I think for the most part, but it's this. Well, then someone would see your partner naked. And, and I, I know, think about that, but I bet a lot of people, that's how they, that honestly, like, well, what, why I'm like, you should have a little more confidence, um, and maybe some pride. You know, it's, it's that misogynistic, uh, conquest and ownership of women. There it is. And there it is. Yeah. So, which is gross. Like, seriously, stop it. Um, okay. Can we just stop it? Just stop. Okay. I'm my own person. If yeah. I want to hang out with my tits out, I'm going to hang out with my tits out. That's right. And I don't give a fuck what John thinks. I mean, I love you. But if I'm going to hang out with my tits out, I'm going to hang out with my tits out. <laughs> There's no like... Getting permission. Getting permission. That seems insane to me now. But people do this. I know. And, I know. and, we, and people do it. They're always asking permission. That's right. You know, and something like going to a naked resort and you both being naked and like getting over it getting over yourself, but also getting over what you think you thought about your ownership of your partner, you know? Well, you got to have some confidence in a relationship as That's well. That's right. You know, it's, That's it's, right. it's that it's not a conquest, but it's also that you just have a confidence in your relationship. Yes. Plus I wanted to go down to Mexico. Uh, I, I, I wanted to really quick mention this other trip that was life-changing. I know you've been to India a number of times. Um, over the years. Yeah, I've been to India, I don't know, five times. And we decided um, we'd go as a family and we brought our kids. I remember afterwards, we the line we said to each other was, we are either the best parents or, or, the, worst. or the worst parents <laughs> <laughs> when we took our kids on this trip. Because it, it was, there was a lot um, going on in that trip to make that to make that trip, just to make it, it just the, the sheer amount of time it just gets to, to get there. And the jet lag. Yeah, yeah, that. But India is a place that operates so differently than like North America, yeah. for instance. So differently. There's so much letting go you have to do. If you, you have uh, expectations about how things are supposed to be, or if you're supposed to be somewhere on time, or um, something, or, you know... Like your flight that is scheduled is supposed to leave when it says, um, you're, you're in for it. Okay. So, <laughs> so we were in, where were we? What's the big city we were in? We are in New Delhi. So we're in New Delhi and, um, we just naively got in a car to go to the airport to catch our flight. Well, when we got there, it turns out that flight had left a couple hours early. Just. <laughs> yeah. They decided to leave. Two hours early. Yeah. So no, they mention it to us. Yeah, um, there was no call from the nope. airline. So we had to travel. Um, I don't remember the distance to the next city that we were going to, but they said, well, you can just, you just take a car. Like, well, how, how far is it? I said, well, four, you know, three or four hours. And yeah, they I, said it was three or four hours what to I, the next airport. Yeah. What I learned about India in general was it just triple it, whatever the time is. So if they said that, it was 12 hours. So we're driving along and we get this, this poor bastard driving the cab. And uh, I remember we had the we had the car seat. Oh, yeah. And I hand it to him and he opens the trunk and throws it in the back. And we were like, no, 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 no. No way. Oh, you know, we need to put our kid in there. I know. Sure. Uh, and so then we get in the cab. We're like, okay, we're going to make our way. 
I don't know when things got off the rails, but some time had passed and he seemed to be lost, very lost. He was lost. Yeah, he was lost. And at some point we got to this, um, it wasn't dark yet, but I remember we got to this, like he was running out of gas. So we had a gas station and some tea and I was able to get a phone reception because we're getting pretty close to the Pakistan border. And so I text my brother and I said, look, I'm either going to go north and I'm being taken to Pakistan. You you may not see me again. Or I'm going to the right. I'm going to our location. I'm not really sure. I just know if we leave the country, that's not in the cards. That wasn't planned. And so I was a little nervous just because I'd never been on the border. And um, and he didn't know where he was going. And uh, he came back to the car and we luckily turned right. So I thought, okay, we're on our way. Then it started getting dark. And, oh, and we got some food, by the way. I should mention that. We got we hadn't been eating, so we, we had snacks, but we got a big bag of food. And we're like, well, we, we, we found a vendor or something that yeah. had plenty yeah, of so we got, food. Yeah, so we got food, and we, we're driving along. And at some point, we're under this bridge driving. and It was it, through, like, sewage. Yeah, we were driving through a river of sewage under a bridge at some point. Yeah. Not, not, in, not in a location that was anywhere where we should be. And we kept driving and driving. And now we're, taught, we're convincing this guy not to, not to let us off. Like, he's like, I'm done. We keep going. Well, we're getting up to the airport. The the original airport we were supposed to fly into. Yes. But it is what? 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night? night? Gates closed. Yeah. There's nobody at the airport. And all of a sudden, ring, ring, ring. He's the airline. Oh, yeah. They said drop because they were paying for the cab. And the airline was saying, we're only getting you to the airport. (laughs) He's going to drop us off at this closed airport. And I was like, no, you're driving us to our hotel. (laughs) And he kept trying to hand the phone to her. And he goes... No. I'm not talking to him. I'm not talking to him anymore. Hang up on them. <laughs> yeah, I convinced the cabbie. I gave him like 20 bucks. Yeah. And I said, here's $20 to not answer that phone. Yeah. <laughs> Be- <laughs> That's true. I remember this now. <laughs> yeah. And and drive us to our hotel. Yeah, don't answer that phone. Don't answer the here's phone. Here's $20. Because we answer the phone, then we have to talk to the airline, then yeah. the, and then they tell the cabbie to stop. And I was like, no, here's 20 bucks. Keep going. And and, he's, and then he then he got lost. Then he got lost, and he's he's Again. yeah. We we're going up this. But, you know, we're maybe he didn't know where he was. Uh, I'm going. not down on this guy at all. To this no, point, La- he, later yeah. it gets a little sketchy. But but we're driving up this mountain, and and and, I, and he has no idea where he's going. And I realize we're we're and we're trying to tell him where to go. It'd be like if you're in Seattle and you're looking for West Seattle, and you just point at Ballard. Or you point like at Tacoma and you go, go that way. So I realized like, this is on us too. We don't really know where we're going. So we're pointing to a general area outside of this mountain. And we, and he's pulling over and asking anyone at this point. Yeah. And he keeps looking over at us saying, I'm going to need to let you out. And Amy keeps saying, we're not going to get out of the car. Because that's a disaster. At this point, it's midnight. It's a little scary. And we don't know where we are. <laughs> so we, and we don't know where the hotel is. And we have Henry, who's like, what, two? He's two in the, in and, the car and seat. And Arlie, who's like nine. Yeah. And um, we, it's we, midnight in India, yeah. and we're lost. And, and yeah. I'm like, no, here's another 20 bucks. Yeah. Keep driving. <laughs> so we continue on. We soldier on. We find our way there. Mercifully, we get into the general area. And the guy pulls in to kind of a... And I went and talked to this guy at a, like a dessert um, cart. Yeah. So the, the cabbie is like, I'm kind of done and you need to pay me. Yes. And, uh, and, and we're like, we're not quite there. We don't know where we are. We're like in a... a, a you know what's interesting? Center it's, of the town or whatever. Yeah. I've been back to India twice since that trip. I know exactly where we were. I, yeah. I actually am friends with the vendor guy that we got instructions from. Well, I, gotta, like, I know exactly. I, but at the time at midnight, and it was the first time we had all been there. 
yeah. um, in this particular place. And then, but this is the thing, like this guy was done. Yeah. You know, he's done his part and I don't blame him, but we at the same time have to get there. This vendor dude was so comes out cool. from behind his job. Yeah. It's later. He comes over, he starts conversing with the cab driver because mm-hmm. it's easier for them to talk. Right. And he's like, he's kind of arguing for us. I noticed they're arguing. Yeah. He's, he's like defending us. And we've just met this nice young fella. He then says, I know where it's at. I'm getting in the car with you all. So Remember he gets that? in the car with us. He gets us. in the car and he starts pointing and directing the guy. We get to the bottom of this hill. The guy then, <clears throat> we have to negotiate because now we have to pay him and he won't well, open he, the trunk. Yeah, he wouldn't open the trunk. So that was another 50 bucks. Yeah, that cost us 50 to open the trunk. Yep. And he's doing all that. But that's the, smart. You know what? He yeah. he actually had the upper hand. <laughs> the vet, and I start unloading the, the all the, the luggage and I'm taking everything out and getting the kids. And I get our, I grab our food and I set it with the luggage. We're on the side of this road. Amy's dealing with the $50. And this guy, and she says to him, the vendor, he says, he tries to give her money. Like, thank you. He goes, no, 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 no. He doesn't take a penny. He's like, nope. And that dude walks himself home. Yeah. Back to the cart. I mean, he's a hero. I just, that's my favorite part of that story. It was worth the entire thing almost just to see the kindness of this man. And as Amy's doing that, and I got the kids, I looked and I'm like, we haven't eaten in hours. We haven't eaten, yeah. Hours. I look down and out of nowhere, a dog is in our food. A dog is rummaging through all the food I buy. He's like, I got, I got, I got. You just go into town. And I, I'm like, no, get away. And I shoo the dog away. Amy sees none of this. Then I said, bad dog. And I turn and the dog is peeing on the food. Well-trained dog. Once I told him to shoo, he just was like, all right, fuck you. And he peed all over the food. So the dog has now peed on the food. I got him to stop eating it, but he peed on it. So it's ruined. They go off and Amy goes to grab the food. She says, we need this. I go, don't touch that food. Leave that food right there on the side of the road. I was like, a dog peed on it. She goes, what dog? I go, I swear to God, it was a dog. And you see Arlie, he goes, yeah, there was a dog. You just peed on our food. And it's like, oh my God. And we go up a thousand million steps with our luggage. Mm-hmm. It's really high up. And we get to this. Uh, it's an amazing. But yes, it's, it's it, it, it is. is the most incredible guest house you will ever stay it's in. It's up on the Himalayas. I mean, there's oh, a yeah, reason yeah. we were going up mountains and these stairs and it's beautiful. We're like we made it. It's over. The entire place is shut down. We can't, no one will answer the door. I mean, we are like, oh my God, we're going to be sleeping outside. We're like, we were so close and we're like knocking on the door. And I said, I'm going to go look to try to get a window. I'm at this point looking for a window I can, that's open, yeah. that I can just mm-hmm. jump through. And all of a sudden Amy gets this inner survival instinct kicks in and I found a very strategic window to just pound the living shit out of. <laughs> and then I, then we see the light go on. Ding, ding. We were saved. <laughs> and this wonderful yes, woman. We were so worried. We woke Where her, we woke her up and she's like, we were so worried. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you're here. And she lets us in and lets us into our beautiful room. And the next morning, our monk friend met us and we sat out on this, um, patio, patio that overlooked. I've never been in the Himalayas, never been anything anywhere, even kind of like that in my lifetime. And here I was just beat to shit from this traveling. I was a little down on the whole thing. And it was the most beautiful view and the most delicious breakfast and just most like, I felt so full of life that morning. And it just, it's worth the effort is what I'm, the moral of the story is. That and don't put your food on the side of the road when you
to the music of Toronto's Ducks Limited. They are a duo who make this amazing jangle pop. I don't know what else to call it. I, I love the idea of jangle pop, though. They've been together since 2018. They've released this amazing debut LP called Modern Fiction. It's out via Royal Mountain Records in Canada and everywhere else in the world on Car Park. They're touring a ton through March, and then they join one of our favorite bands, Nation of Language, through April, including a Seattle date. On March 24th at the sunset, you know the doctor and the DJ will be there. You can find more information about Ducks Limited and their excellent new record at ducksltd.co. Renee Erickson is a Seattle-based chef and restaurateur of six restaurants here in Seattle. She began her career as an art student at the University of Washington. She started working at Boat Street and was offered the opportunity to buy it when she was 25. And that is going to be one of my first questions because I think that's amazing. And then Bon Appetit magazine said she is one of the reasons Seattle is one of the most exciting places to eat in the country. That is a very nice thing to say. And her 2014 book, A Boat, a Whale, and a Walrus, was met with great success and critical acclaim. And her new New book is beautiful. It's entitled Get Away Food and Drink to Transport You. It is like a dream book for Amy and I who love food and travel and Seattle. And Renee, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Can I get right into the UW thing? We're both UW alum. Um, when were you there? What years were you at the University of Washington? Uh, so I transferred there. I started at University of Oregon. I have a, um, one thing not on your resume is I was a softball player. So I went to, yeah, I went to U of O on a softball scholarship and I quickly realized that I was only going to be playing sport and not going to school, uh, or at least not able to take classes that I wanted to take. So after my first semester there, I transferred back to UW. Um, cause at the time I was really hoping to be an art teacher. I, had really great relationships with my art teachers growing up and was just really inspired by it. And yeah, so I, I went back to UW and ended up there from 1991, I guess, to five, 1995. Did that touch on your time, Amy? It did, didn't it? Let's see. You were right before me. No, right after. I was 96. <laughs> I was at UW 96 to 98 and then again 2000 to 2002. Yeah, I think I started 94. So we cross over yeah. a little bit, oh. University yeah. of Washington. So have you been on campus at all? You are. You're on, you're on the, you're still involved, right? Yeah, I sit on the board for the School of Art, although it's been with the pandemic, I haven't been on campus, but it, you know, it's fun to go back. Yeah. It's yeah. so, I mean, it still feels so beautiful and big and, you know, so it's like, hard to not wander around, especially in the springtime. I remember this last year, they were like, don't go look at the blossoms. And I was like, virtual blossom tour? I don't know. <laughs> not the same. <laughs> I have such an easier time being there now that I'm not a student. And I can really appreciate it is a gorgeous, gorgeous campus. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel anyone going there is, is very lucky to be able to attend there. So I, I know when I was that age and I was working in restaurants, no one said, hey, John, maybe buy this. They said more like maybe work harder. Um, but so I've worked in restaurants, um, through college and, um, I know Amy did as well, but can you talk about that? Just how that came to be and, and what that job for you was like to go, was that your main like, like gig in college? 
Yeah. So I was still at the university when I got my first job at Boat Street. I knew the woman that was managing it. And so she was like, oh yeah, come work, you know, as one gets a job 20 or 30 years ago, I guess, um, with no experience. (laughs) And I had been working in coffee and doing, you know, kind of the usual Seattle stuff. And I was a server at Boat Street and it was open for dinner and brunch and lunch, actually. So, you know, I was able to kind of do all of those things and quickly realize that I wasn't maybe the best server, or at least I didn't really, especially at dinner time, like I felt really out of place trying to recommend wine or or anything like that. So I asked if I could, um, you know, work in the kitchen and started prepping and coming in early before class and made scones and things like that. And Susan, who started Boat Street, also had a full-time job. She worked down in Tacoma. So there were times where there was opportunity to do things that maybe I shouldn't have been able to do because no one was there. So I'd be like, well, we have to open the doors. So um, <laughs> that took over and I ended up just learning and some, not everyone, but you know, I think the lucky ones of us that end up in pretty interesting restaurant jobs, you really find, you know, I fell in love with it. Like I fell in love with restaurants and being around people and creating spaces and um, opportunity for people to, you know, celebrate and all of that. So you know, I just loved being there. I, I eventually started to be the, um, I don't say chef cause it, I was literally like 24 or three, I think at the time when I was just, I was the person that was responsible for making the food, but <laughs> I, I was not a chef. Um, and Susan again was kind of struggling with a bunch of different things in her life. And, uh, I had gone away to Europe and come back and, um, she, I think knew that I really loved it. And so she kept asking me like, Oh, do you want to take it over? Do you want it? And I thought she was nuts. And at this point, I had graduated from UW and I was applying to go to graduate school in get my MFA. And um, I was waitlisted to go. I wanted to go back to Rome. That was my goal. And I was waitlisted to go to Temple, which has a program in Rome. And at the same time, she was like, well, I need to make a decision about the restaurant. And so I asked everyone around me that I trusted And I was like, should I wait to see if I get into college or should I buy the restaurant? And they're all like, buy the restaurant. So, I mean, I bought it for, I mean, I say I bought it, but it was basically almost no money. I took over a restaurant um, (laughs) with some, with some debt, but very little. And I was, you know, it was, like I said, it was 25 years ago. And, you know, as I think anyone that had worked in restaurants 25 years ago knows how different the industry is now. So the opportunity to do that was, I think, entirely based on timing and circumstance, not that I was planning to do it or even should have done it, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, yeah, the timing, too. Every Timing's everything. And just being, I always say, being prepared for luck uh, is, yeah, is an important way to totally. live. If that, that, tell me the, the impact that trip to Rome had. Was that your first international trip or, the, or just the most impactful trip you've had at that point? It was both, yeah. So um, it was my first trip really abroad anywhere. I had been to Canada basically, but, and around the United States, but I went with a girlfriend and we actually started in Madrid and kind of made our way to Rome. We had like, I think three weeks beforehand before we had to start school, which was, you know, just eye opening and mind blowing and wonderful in so many ways. And just to be away, you know, like the first time, you know, with, you know, back then there was no cell phones. You, you know, were like walking around with maps and, um, just in awe of the culture and the food and the, the, the different way of living. And, and so then, yeah, I spent the next four months living in Rome and 
it was, I mean, it's to, to this day, like my favorite time really was there just kind of being able to move around the city. And I lived really close to, um, Castel San Angelo and was able to walk from there to uh, our school, which is in Campo de Fiori. So it was like a 10 minute walk or something like that. But I would go the long way and kind of wander through the streets and watch shops being opened up and and do that every day. And, you know, you're a student, so you have no money. So you're like buying like very, you know, like eating super simply and trying to experience things and even not having money to really like go to restaurants or anything. It felt really bountiful and full of really interesting tradition that I didn't really know of here. You know, I grew up in the seventies and we had really great food and my parents had a garden. We would go crabbing and do all those things, but it didn't have that like generational depth of culture that really I hadn't seen before. So it was really special. I'm curious, you know, you're talking about taking over the restaurant and talking about this trip to Rome. And talking about being an art student and applying for, you know, your MFA program. I want to know if there was a moment inside of you that knew you had to choose or that, or did you feel like it was more a survival, like, well, this is being offered to me, I should jump on it. Or did you like have a moment where like you had that voice in your head or like that intuition that's, that's Mm. telling you, you know what, just fucking go for it. (laughs) I love it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of that. And I think opening a restaurant, um, I did have to choose because I, Susan, like I said, was dealing, she was dealing with some um, personal stuff and needed to kind of move along. And, you know, that clock was ticking and, you know, I was either going to like say no to her and hope that I got into university or choose. And I think, you know, I, I remember asking two really close friends and my parents and, you know, everyone said the same thing. Cause I think they saw me working in the restaurants. And at that point I had been running it and, you know, like really excited about learning about wine and we had built a patio. We did all these things that like were really about creating a, you know, place for people. And so, I mean, it was definitely a go for it kind of moment once I made the decision and then it, you know, like then it's just a blur. So it was um, a good five years before I came up for air, I think. (laughs) Right. Well, from an outsider's perspective, I think you did succeed in both. I think of you as an artist. When I look at your restaurants and I look at your food and I look at this new book you have, I'm like, my Mm -hmm. God, it's just art and poetry through all of it. And and it's so beautiful to me. So whether or not you went to art school and got your MFA, it doesn't matter because you are an artist. And, And do you feel that way? Do you feel like you get to have this manifestation of your art in your restaurants and in your recipes? Yeah, I think, you know, yes, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think I was asked to go back and sit on the board at UW was that there's a real good, um, you know, there's no like straight line when you're going, especially in art school, like to end up being like, you know, the people that end up being actual artists in galleries are almost, you know, so minimal. I think I know like two that I went to school with that are successful at making art solely. And it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard to do that. I think in this, especially in America, like we don't have the like real component of art collecting in our like financial systems as much as I think a lot of other places in the world. 
but yeah, I mean, the you know, the books, I think, were a really good place to um, be able to think about things. I remember having a moment with one of my chefs years ago, and he we were putting together a dish, and, and he asked me, he's like, well, why did you set it up that way? in, you know, planning this dish. And, you know, it was the first time where I was just like, oh, I don't really have a good answer, but I, you know, to me, it looks, you know, like correct. And the way, you know, like visually what I'm looking for. And I didn't have, I was, you know, it was hard for me to articulate it at the time, but in hindsight, it was very much like I had, you know, spent 10 years thinking about, you know, the frame and how you compose things and all of that visually as an artist, but certainly obviously translates to a plate. So, um, and then in the restaurant. So yeah, it's like, it's super fun. I feel really fortunate that I get to do both. I get to be able to create these places with beautiful food and, and, you know, experience. And then also like, which is makes me even more happy. I get to fill it with my favorite artists, friends, you know, works too. So I feel like the most successful people are some of the happier people I've met are the people who, who do have these multiple skills or, or bring different things into one. Um, like it's not just opening a restaurant. It's what you talk about, the art and the food and the, you know, there's plenty of people who do one thing. You have to be a chef, you have to be a restaurateur, a business person and an artist. But I feel like if you're skilled in those areas, those are usually the people who are the most satisfied and and end up being the most successful at this. I mean, you own what, six restaurants? There's more though. You have more, you have other things going on Yeah, we have a few that aren't open and, and yeah, yeah, so yeah, you know, I'm, I'm super proud of what we've been able to create. It's definitely, um, you know, there's moments where I was like, Oh, I think we went too far. <laughs> like, what do we do? Um, but you know, it's uh, the creating part of it is a huge component to why opening restaurants is, is alluring to people because it is very exciting and like the energy around it is very exciting. Um, And I think as, you know, like personally, as my job's changed over the last 25 years from like only cooking to cooking and managing and cooking and designing and then just managing and designing and doing like events and that sort of stuff, um, that component becomes bigger, you know? And so you're trying to like, and the creative part's the fun part. So I think there's a balance obviously to try to maintain it, but I mean, restaurants, you know, they're nuts, but they're also super fun. So or bars, it's just, you know, they're all the, it's the same kind of variables that get It totally play. is. I mean, you totally summed it up. Like when I, I'm sure you have friends or especially when you were early in this who haven't, didn't hear you talk about it a lot. People have a different vision or idea of what it is. I, I've realized yeah, more than anything totally. else I do. They, they know me, they know my DJing. They got that figured out more than they have this bar thing figured out. And I think the pandemic really brought it home like how difficult this business is, how, what a fine line you have, how reliant you are, not just on the public, but on supply chain, on your uh, staff. The staff is everything. And that is the thing Mm -hmm. I learned from day one. Your staff is is your place, that that period. And then to have this pandemic come in and have to lay those people off or not have their energy and then in turn clearly don't have the, the customer's energy was just... I mean, you know, it's a nightmare. Is there, I mean, I'm not, I don't, you don't have to walk through because I know some people own multiple places and I thought this is like people telling you when you have more than one kid, it's, you know, it's not that hard after you. Yeah, it is. It totally is. It absolutely is. (laughs) If you get more than one dog, it's actually more difficult because you have more dogs now. Um, And so I think of people, you all came to mind. There's a few people in our city that came to my, my thoughts when even we were just closing our one place down that having that many people reliant on a paycheck and that many locations to balance with the PPP with trying to keep those afloat. Like 
what what was your experience overall? Like, did it did it get to a scary point for you where you thought you were going to lose really these places? Because it did for us, yeah. Yeah, really, really fast. Um, I mean, it was heartbreaking. I think that's the only truly good way to describe it because, like you were saying, like with your staff and the people that you've worked with for years, you know, some for eight, nine, ten years – you know, you, it makes up everything that makes your restaurant successful and to have to, you know, lay off people with no information and no knowledge of what's going to happen. And it felt like you were just like, you know, sending people off on a ship that was going to sink, you know, like it was just like, this is terrible. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just the, it was gut wrenching and, and also like, I think weirdly, like so exhausting because there was, so much work to do on top of it, you know, like trying to like, like, you know, we had seven places filled with food that we had to figure out what to do with and where to haul it and who to give it to. And if we could cook it and wh- what we would do with it then. And if, you know, like time was ticking, like we had like, I don't even know how many dozens of oysters that we were just like, <laughs> we can't let these just die, you know, like how do we, and so it was just insanity for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then you know, and then I think we all kind of were like, okay, well, this isn't ending. So we tried to like make some plans, but those changed every, you know, literally day or, you know, every two days. And, you know, a lot of the things I think, you know, in hindsight, like, you know, we did a, a many, almost everything wrong. I would say <laughs> like, it just felt like <laughs> we couldn't do the right thing. And, and, uh, and at the end, you know, I think thankfully we consolidated down to three restaurants just to try to keep as many employees alive as we could in the company so that, you know, in our minds, we were thinking, oh, well, in like two months, right. we'll have, you know, like the managers and the chefs that all the locations that can go back and rehire the staff and things will be normal, you know, whatever that is. And of course, we know that didn't happen. So, you know, we had three restaurants up for... I don't know, forever. It felt like Walrus was closed for, I think, five months. You know, I remember going in there like at month three or something like that and just being like, God, you know, and it was our 10 year anniversary that summer. And we had this massive party planned, big fundraiser. And um, we didn't even call people to tell them it wasn't happening. It was just like, well, it's a pandemic. Y'all know you're not coming here. But it was sad because restaurants take up so much of your life and they become your life. And to have them just disappear you know, overnight, literally was impossible to imagine. And so you just don't know how to really, I mean, I think in many ways, I still don't entirely know that I've dealt with it. You know, you mm-hmm. just keep going and going and going to try to try to survive. But yeah, it's wild. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. So, you know, I can relate to that by about one one hundredth, right? <laughs> We own our place and I was responsible for a lot of stuff during the pandemic, during 2020. And I felt like I was drowning half the time and all that responsibility and, and not knowing what we were going to do or if we were going bankrupt or what the hell was happening. Totally. <laughs> but I also had like, I was like homeschooling my kids and doing my medical practice and doing all this stuff. Right. And I look at someone like you, who you had built these seven restaurants and I already said you're an artist and you love to travel. What did that do to you personally, like your mental health? Because all of a sudden there's no traveling. The restaurants are all either closed or in a very, very different version of themselves. That, and, mm-hmm. and you're laying off all these people. Like, how, did, how was that for you? 
I think, you know, it's funny. I, I think I'm a pretty durable person. Like, I think that's probably one of my strengths is that I can cope with things really well. You know, it's hard for me to get really like one way or the other. And it, it, in many ways, I'm sort of like, is something wrong with me? <laughs> like, <laughs> is that what's wrong with me is that I'm like blah about it all. But during the pandemic, there was a core group of us that met at, well, for a while we were meeting every day because we just were like, we didn't know where else to go. But I think having, you know, people around me, I wasn't doing it by myself. So I felt pretty, um, you know, there was comfort in that. Like there was a group of us that, you know, had been working together for a very long time that were making decisions that weren't just my decisions to make. Um, I, you know, I don't know. You know, I think I was numb mostly like the whole time. I think that was my way to like cope was just to like not be you know, fatalist about it and, and hope that we could get through it. Um, you know, I cried a lot too, definitely lots of crying. I, I remember actually when we were laying everyone off, we drove from whale winds to walrus and I had already gone through a whole bottle of eye drops. So I, I remember stopping in at PCC before the next meeting, just being like, okay, how am I, you know, cause you, I mean, I can get teary about it now where it's just like, it's, you know, it's just, Oh, you know, <laughs> make me cry. Um, it's, it's overwhelming. I think my mental health, I think I drank a lot more. That probably wasn't great for my mental health. Um, we all did. Yeah. Def- same. Yeah. Def- I mean, I think, yeah, the whole world like consumed crazy amounts of alcohol. Um, any moment I had, I was either like trying to like make sure my parents were staying alive and away from anyone. And I would take food to them and, I don't know. I just kept busy. I think that was the only thing I could do. I could not imagine staying home. Like I would have just curled up and not been able to function. So I've, I actually am grateful that I had something to do. Um, it was scary. I think my husband and I, for a moment, were like, what are we doing? This is ridiculous. Like, why are we pretending like it's okay to work um, while everyone's at home in the world, you know? And so we we actually kind of made an arrangement at Whalewinds early on that like he and I would go in at like five in the morning and cook staff meal and try to like produce things for everyone to pick up. And we would make food for uh, Windermere partnered with us to make food for some of the hospitals. And so we would do that and then like leave at one and then everyone else would come at like two and do the takeout service. And so we were just, you know, like we were afraid. And at that point, then we started wearing masks and it felt a little less scary, but I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I feel like I've aged like five years and, (laughs) (laughs) and I think in hindsight, I feel, um, I feel durable again. Like I'm re, you know, like I will survive this in some way, you know, like I think, and there's a lot of change and a lot of introspection around how we've done things in the past that is changing, which is really, I'm really grateful for that in our company. And then I, you know, in our society here locally and then abroad. So, but yeah, I mean, it was awful. I think it's hard, especially when you're in leadership to, you know, you you get used to like having a direction and kind of like helping people kind of get through their day. And that disappeared, you know, like with no support from the government and no real like, you know, ability to help anyone other than whatever you could like piece together on your own. And so that felt, I think, was the hardest for me was to feel like we were really letting everyone down. So as we turn the the corner and you've been able to have people uh, at your restaurants and I don't know about you, but, um, God, Amy and I had, well, we've, we, we had a, we had a specific moment in our bar when it was boarded up, um, and boxes everywhere and it starts to get dusty and we couldn't even get cleaners in, you know, so you want to save money and no one could be around each other anyway. So it's dark. Yeah, it was, 
everything that's the (laughs) opposite of what you love, not only as an owner or someone who works there, but as a, as a person who comes in, you go in for life and brightness and food and just warmth and conversation and music and all the good things on this earth are are in a restaurant, in a bar, depending which ones you go to, I suppose. Not all Mm -hmm. of them. I've been to a few that haven't been that way, but the, the ones that really bring all that together. And it it was the low point, but Amy and I were in there and I remember when we were kind of full, as full as we could be at the time, even with masks, and it was hearing people talking. It was the clanging of the dishes that you always hear and music in the background and laughing. And I remember thinking, because before, like you said, like, what am, what are we doing? Why why do I even do this? And And I had those moments like, why did, because I didn't know a pandemic was coming, but why did we open this place? I was reminded immediately and I got a whole brand new perspective and it reinforced everything great about food, about community, about people being together. Did you, were you able to have a moment or were you so busy just getting it open? Did you have a moment where you were able to see people in one of your places and go, okay. Yeah. You know, I think it was when we reopened Walrus before we were able to sit inside, we had a tent out back and it was, you know, no one, no one loves anything better than eating in a parking lot, but, um, yeah, we're out on the street. So we hear you. <laughs> yeah. Right. We had tents and Jeffrey Mitchell, who's the artist in both of my cookbooks and also all the art at Walrus and the Carpenter. Um, we've been working on this book for the illustrations and he just would send all these drawings. And so I was just like, Hey, we're doing these tents. Can we frame these for Walrus? And it was so fun. Cause we ended up taking them to Annie's and Ballard and framed probably like 40 of his drawings and hung them everywhere in the tents and had these really cute lights and we had flowers and I potted roses up in the beginning too. It was like a lot of our staff that hadn't been working were coming and it was like, we're having a party for people, (laughs) you know, and it just felt so wonderful to, you know, feel hope around that and feel like we were in a place that people were excited to come to. And it felt, you know, as safe as we thought it could be at the time, because we were all outside and everyone kind of set the tents had walls. So you weren't really close to anyone. And, but yeah, like hearing, uh, I mean, for me, it's also just like walrus has this sense of chaos and loud and party. And, um, we weren't there yet, but it was close. And so it was, and we set the oyster shucker opposite so everyone could see him shucking or her shucking. So that was really fun too. It was just having people in the space, even if it's not in the space was really, it just felt like there was hope to like get on the other side of it. Um, so weird. And getting in, getting into your book, which again, we, we cannot recommend enough. And I, and we haven't mentioned the writing. So is this just a skill you picked up as well? You just, no, no, I, you, that all goes to Sarah Dickerman. So yeah. she wrote it with me. She's fantastic. She just listens to me ramble on and on and on <laughs> and then makes it sound better. That's <laughs> a the perfect better. person to have. <laughs> yeah. We all need so that. She, yeah. She, no, I wish I could write like her, but in fact, no, but yeah, no, she's magic. Her like way of translating the world world into words is pretty special. Well, it's a, and, and it's all come together in, in this book. Did it turn out like you thought it would? Did you have a vision of it? And it, it's pretty great. I would assume it was even better than you can even, even imagined. You know, it was, books are, I mean, I've only done two, so I don't, I'm no expert, but I really loved my first book. Like, I think it had a real, um, it was very me in a word. It felt like this collection of all these people that I loved and, you know, important moments in my life. And, you know, like Jeffrey, obviously, who I've been talking about, did the cover. And um, 
so, you know, like that was seven years later when this book comes out and, you know, this took three years to, to make. Um, but in doing so, like it was really a challenge to kind of think about a new one in a way that like I was going to love like the first one. Cause it felt impossible really. Like I was just like, how can I, I'm not going to be able to do that. And, you know, it's funny, like, I think I'll probably always love the first book the most just because it was like, I don't have kids, so I don't know that it's like your first born, but it was like everything hard about producing a book like I went through in that book. So this felt slightly easier. There's something like good about like digging out of something that you know nothing about and like feeling really great about it in the end. Yeah. And this book, you know, it was just a little bit easier. So in many ways, I'm like, oh, I don't know, is it as good? But um, it's like hearing someone describe their debut <laughs> album and then their follow up album. I have had this conversation go. like, well, the debut was like. It all led up to that. It was our first putting it out in the world. So I totally get it. And then the second one felt like, oh, we kind of were on our way. It's a funny thing. Um, Now that this book is published and being able to look at it outside of on a computer, which is dreadful for (laughs) three years, it it made a lot more sense to me in that like the first book is, is 12 chapters. Each chapter features a person or a place, you know, a farmer, whatever that's been, that had been really important to me. And then Without really realizing it at the same time, this book, Getaway, does the same thing except for it's these places and then the people there that have become very close to me and important to me as a cook. So I was describing it recently as like the first book's kind of like the Seattle circle and then this is the like world (laughs) that I've been able to experience that supports what I do. But yeah, no, the book, it's fun. Like I got better at like fighting for things I wanted in the book, you know, like, and, and then I, you know, did some stuff that I was just like, oh, I should have talked about that sooner, you know, but (laughs) like the blue binding on the book was something that I was really excited about having. I spend a lot of time looking at books that are designed in other places besides the States, because I think our design for at least cookbooks are a little um, less artistic. They kind of feel a little you know, everything has to have food on the cover. Everything has to be like, there can't be like crazy graphics or anything like that. And whereas like British books, I'm just obsessed with. I'm like every book, I want them all. (laughs) I want, you know, so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And both myself and my business partner, Jeremy, um, we do all the interiors and he does all the branding work for the restaurants. So we were able to design the book too. So Um, it's nice when we can work together and kind of be creative around like visually putting stuff together and coming up with colors and all of that. The cover is actually my parents' house and uh, it's up on the, um, like if you go to Marysville and head west, it's out on the water out there. And Well, I mean, you've done these books, not how people do cookbooks. And I think there's something to be said about that. And I think there's a lesson here (laughs) that, you know, you are an artist you, you love people, you love food, you love where it comes from, you love sustainability, you love the story that goes into all of it. And you're able to put that into these books. And I love what you were saying about your first book. Because, you know, like you said, you might have like a little more like you love it better, like your first kid or something. But (laughs) and I think it's because the process you had to go through to manifest it into the world, create it into the world, bring it into the world, whatever you want to say. Um, It took something from you and it took a certain boldness and it took who you are 
to make that happen, right? Like you didn't just sit back and let the publishers or the people tell you how it's supposed to be. You were like, no, this is this is what I'm going to do. And this is how it's going to be. And that's also, I think, part of why people love it so much is because it is unique. And it brings in all those elements that make you unique, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you were to ask both of my editors, they would, they still both like me very much, but I am probably not the easiest. <laughs> I can imagine, I say this about us, like as a company too, like with our partnership with Mike Mora from Heliotrope Architect, where I'm always laughing because we finally found someone who like will let us be a pain in the ass client to just like, <laughs> let us design the stuff. We love you, Mike, please. You know, it's just, cause it's, it's hard. Like everyone has an opinion and you know, we're like wanting to do things a certain way. And, you know, especially with the book, I think you're right. There's a lot of expectation that the chef, author, person, whoever's writing the cookbook is going to submit recipes and stories. And then like someone else is going to photograph it. Someone else will cook the food, you know, like someone will design it. Someone will do all of that. And with both books, you know, it was very clear up front that I wanted to be part of that entirely. And I think that's, it makes for a harder process for sure. Cause everyone's like got an opinion, but it's good too. Like it's just challenging. But you know, I was given, I don't know if it was Amy passing it on to me or somebody else, but I've, uh, especially owning a place and even doing some of my work, I, I was told if someone says, well, this is the way it's done, or this is the way we do it, you should run the other way as fast as you yeah. can from that person. <laughs> totally. Fire them. Yeah. yeah. Like my favorite people are the ones that went the other direction or, or, it's pretty awesome to not have experience in something. So you don't know how to do it the way everybody's done it. Sure. That's where creativity like an, comes yeah. from. Yeah, like an art student yeah. taking over a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> right, a cookbook. Yeah, right. I know I've a few times recently people have asked me, they're like, why did you make all your restaurants different? To me, that was just like, why would I not? Yeah, you, you don't know? even like, know, right? The, <laughs> right, yeah. You know, I mean, I get that it like financially doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. And there's like systems that can be repeated and- right. You know, if something's good, you know, like, why won't you do it like five more times? And yeah, I mean. Well, your consistency is is in the the people, the food, and the style yeah. are all great. And in a way, does, do you think it feels good if people don't know, if they've gone to two of your places and don't know you own it? In a way, I think that's kind of a compliment. It's, yeah, I, I think, you know, like, if you look closely, you'll see the thread that goes through all of them. So, <laughs> but I do, I mean, like, that's definitely the fun of it, too, is to be able to create different things and, and learn other things. You know, I don't want to do the same stuff over and over again. And looking ahead, Renee, like what are your thoughts and hopes for, for, you know, you're so involved in food and um, there's so much in, in agriculture right now and sustainability and uh, local sourced ingredients and everything just with our climate and everything else going on. How, how do you view, like, what's your role? How do you see it? What, what, how do you kind of see the future? <sighs> Um, you know, it's, it's actually exciting to like, think about it again. I feel like the last two years it's not been, I mean, we haven't changed our purchasing standards at all, but there hasn't been a focus, you know, with the company to participate in much in regards to like fundraising or even like just shining lights on things that are, that matter. Um, so it's, it's nice to start to think about that. We actually have a, um, there's a organization called Smart Catch, which started here in Seattle and then um, ended up becoming part of like James Beard Foundation. And it's a really great way to audit your seafood sourcing. It's 
I think important if you're going to care about something to participate in the things that like perpetuate people to, to pay attention. And so we're starting to, we actually have a meeting next week with Corey Pete, who's the scientist behind it all um, to, you know, kind of jumpstart our participation in that again. And it's good. You know, there was like some time during the pandemic where I was just like, God, is all of that going to go away? You know, mm. I kind of wondered because there was lots of momentum around public awareness to what is hopefully, you know, making a better food system for the food that we get to consume and um, and support. And, you know, like I was kind of curious just, you know, like I was just like, God, is all that just can it not be supported anymore because people are just so exhausted by everything. But we're we're excited about that. Um you know, I think rest. You know, you know this. Like people that work in restaurants are incredibly, um, you know, hardworking and 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 care. I would say largely about the the community that they're a part of. Um, and I and I say that in that like I think like the same community as like fishermen and farmers and those sort of people that you know their lives got harder. I think because they're probably busier than ever and still trying to do what they were doing before the pandemic. And so having the kind of like the ability to, to to support them more and kind of get back to like making that be really a, a bigger conversation and, you know, how we function in Seattle with restaurants and sourcing and that sort of thing is, is a big priority for us. I think it's also just a luxury to get to think about that again. You know, like it's really nice to think about um, whether we should buy, you know, like we talk a lot about you know, what we should and shouldn't be buying or trying to like find out from experts what, what really the science is behind things. And, you know, having the time to think about that is really was great. You know, I mean, it's still not as much as I hope for, but, you know, we're in the right direction. So that's nice. Yeah. Um, before we go, of course, we want to know like what music you're listening to or what your favorite artist or song or band or if there's a tune that's always in your head or something recent or, or got and, you through. And also like if there's anything you listen to when you are cooking or that inspires you. I feel like there's something wrong with my brain because I can't remember names or anything all the time. And so I'm always like, what is that? You could but, just hum it. Just hum it along. I know, right? We'll play, we'll play guess and John right, can totally probably guess. T- tone deaf, uh, Renee. Um, so we, I just got back two nights ago from the last bit of my book tour and we were at, um, we were doing a dinner and uh, they were asking me like what Spotify station we wanted. And we had been listening to the um, New Order station, which I still forever love so much. And then my favorite super band. corny, but good answer. Oh, really? Yes. It's so, I, you know, I have such vivid memories of driving in my friend's blazer, (laughs) listening to cassettes of New Order and just, you know, mind blown, just loved it. And then the less cool, but maybe it was cool. I don't know. Like maybe a little, just a little more poppy, um, Duran Duran radio. So lots of that. Nice. I was in the fan club for Duran Duran as a, you know, uh, I love it. John, Andy, Simon, Nick, Roger in that. Well, Roger would go back. He was the mysterious one, the yeah. drummer. I, I never, so good. They don't get enough credit, by the way. Duran Duran is songwriters. They wrote fucking great songs. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. We hope that all the places are opening up and, and we keep thinking spring and summer whatever normal I don't I hate using normal I'm with you on that like we keep saying like what normal is that I don't I don't yeah I mean I think normal for me now is like I won't be afraid of someone coughing maybe and that may never happen um and that like you can walk into a restaurant without a mask and not yep. worry yeah we had that window that was so awesome for what we were like and that was my birthday. Not- yeah, Amy had a party and it was I amazing. I had a party on and, my birthday. And we're super like careful people who are like, 
Yeah, this is going to, I mean, when the pandemic broke out, Amy was pretty great to have around because she's like, this is going to be, this is going to be like two years. I'm like, no, yes. And so, but even we during (laughs) that period were like, it's over. We're good. <laughs> this is amazing. Totally. For then, five days. And then our and staff. my birthday right. fell in that five days. The it was staff glorious. working those long hours, mass. That was the staff, yeah. not the customers. That stressed me out because they had to wear, I just felt bad for them. The kitchen is hot. You know, you got the mask. You can't yeah. Anyway, I mean, we're. I have one last question for you. <laughs> one last. Then we're yeah. This might be hard to answer. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh. <laughs> so in all the things that happen in life, the trials, the tribulations, the pandemics, right? Like all the like difficult shit that happens. I think of it like a a wildfire or something. And then there's always new growth or like the Phoenix rises from the ashes. Can you name one thing that was like the Phoenix that rose from the ash for you? I mean, I, yeah, I guess like there might be like a work and a, personal and they are probably pretty similar, but work I think was, um, kind of getting through, um, I think personal, I guess it's the same, like getting to a place where, um, after like feeling crappy and not doing a good job and not feeling like I was doing enough, you know, rebuilding the business and kind of having people that we, you know, we cared about and loved and had worked with for a very long time back working with us and, I think in many ways, just like being able to refocus on like really getting rid of like a lot of the noise of restaurant numbers and all of that and just kind of like centering it around like people, you know, and and how that is. I mean, it's what we said earlier. It was just like reaffirming, really, you know, like remembering how important that is and not, you know, because we were busy and we had a ton of employees and it was being able to like really like say no to things that really don't serve our staff and like being able to refocus on like the core things that we want to pay attention to, you know, like I don't, yeah, being able to say no to things and like really focusing back on our staff, I think has been the like biggest thing. Cause it just, it all crumbled, you know, in a way. And, and nobody ever thought this would happen. I didn't certainly, but, um, I think to some extent, like realizing that like a lot of that was taken for granted and then being able to get to a place where you're like, very clear-minded about what it is that matters and how you make decisions based on that and your well-being versus the push to like do everyone's birthday parties, even though you, you know, like they want you to, or, you know, like host events and all the, you know, all the things that like you get wrapped up in because it's the business. So, yeah. And I, you know, that I guess is the crossover into life too, where it's just, you know, I've gotten to spend so much time with my parents, you know, which is so great. And I have my whole life, but I think they're older now and it, you know, it's like, obviously everyone's going to die, but like the pandemic kind of made that like really clear that this was, could be sooner than later. And so having the, you know, time to have conversations that, you know, you wouldn't maybe have thought to do as soon as I was able to. So yeah, just paying better attention, I guess. And, and, and not feeling bad about it. You know, I think there's a lot of that, I think personally feeling guilty, like that I'm not doing enough for everyone else. And getting to a place where I'm just like, mm, can't. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's important to, I think, slow down. And I know I personally was not doing that beforehand and I'm not currently doing it now, right now, but the book's over with book chores over, which I'm so happy about. I and bet. um yeah, I get to go to Baja next week. I'm oh, so excited. Good for you. Well, thank you for taking the time. You're a hero of ours. We were v- so excited to talk to you. We're, we're very proud that you're in our city and, and just the way Thank that you, you take on everything and, and, and 
bringing in art, food, and travel, and it's the whole thing. The book is going to live in our home for many, many years. Um, it's very inspiring, too. It's great to talk to you. Again, get away food and drink to transport you. You you must find this book. And the first book, too. Don't forget that. Yep. A Boat, A Whale, and A Walrus, the way you described it. Um, makes me want to go back and get that one as well. So thank you so much, Renee. And good um, luck coming out of this pandemic. And I hope your staff yeah. and your family and everybody is healthy and happy as we head into uh, the next year. You too. Yeah. Happy. Uh, have a great, happy holiday season. And thank you both. Yeah, Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Big thank you to Renee for finding time in her busy schedule to hang with us today here at The Doctor and the DJ. And to you, of course, for listening to, subscribing, and of course, telling everyone you know about The Doctor and the DJ. That's our marketing right there. We can't recommend Renee's book enough, Get Away, Food and Drink to Transport You Enough. It is a work of art. Go to ReneeErickson.com for more info about that and all of her awesome places here in Seattle. I highly recommend checking those out. Also, big thanks to Ducks Limited out of Toronto and a special thanks to Brent and Shay over at Votive for helping us out getting that music on the podcast today. Also, shouts to our friends at Ruinous Media and Jay Cox for helping out on the podcast as well. Remember to follow us at The Doctor and the DJ on Instagram and online. I also want to thank our new sponsor. So excited to have Wonderground Coffee a part of the Doctor and the DJ family. Their Wonderground Cafe, we went to the opening. It was awesome. They have amazing artwork on the walls. We got a ton of their coffee and went through it so quick. Uh, it's very, very good. They're located up on Capitol Hill at East Pike between 11th and 12th, pretty close to uh, the bar, uh, Life on Mars, that Amy and I own, so they're neighbors as well. Plus, when you go there, use the code Dr. Wonder for 10% off your purchase and you'll need it because you're going to purchase a lot from them. I guarantee it. All right, I'm going to leave you with a song as we do on The Doctor and the DJ. I love this one. It's called How Lonely Are You? Thank you for listening. You are not alone.